and welcome to episode number 10 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rodian Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Todd Hubing. Todd is an icon in the EMC industry. Every time I talk to Todd, I learn something new. Join me in my conversation where I learn the right way to think about ground for safety, for EMC, and for good signal quality. So Todd, we're here at EMC conference, and uh, I've listened to two of your presentations, and the theme is always about grounding. Uh, so one of the uh, messages that you had in the first presentation is uh, kind of the definition of grounding and the distinction between it, how confusing that term is because we use it for different different purposes. So what is grounding and how should we use that term correctly? Yes, so there are basically three situations where we use the word ground. Or three. So safety ground, most people are familiar with the safety ground and how that works and why we have it. Um, but in that situation, the safety ground is basically a, a reliable observable reference for us um, that does not carry any intentional current. Um, it can carry fault current. It's designed to carry fault current, but it does not carry any potential current. And in fact, if it were to carry intentional current, it would no longer be a safe ground. Um, okay, so and so by safety ground, that means tied to earth ground? Is that the same as earth ground? Is it? Okay. I, so in a building, certainly the safety ground is tied to the earth. Um, but in, say, an electric vehicle, uh, there's unsafe voltage. The frame of the vehicle is basically your safe ground. That's the thing you're keeping at zero volts. Um, okay, so you got two ground. situations isolated from Earth and then tied to Earth. And even if it's isolated from Earth, ground can still be a safety ground if it is the enclosure, the chassis, the outside. Is that what safety yes, ground is going to be? If it's the biggest metal stuff around, okay, then you want to tie everything else to that, uh, or reference everything else to that, so that in the end becomes your safety ground, if you need one. If everything's low voltage, if everything's 42 volts or less, you don't really need a safety ground uh, in most situations. Okay. Is that kind of the threshold, 42 volts, is uh, like an OSHA requirement or, or something? I always uh, use 30 volts okay. as, as kind of the limit. Well, the reason I say 42 is because in automotive systems, they developed a 42 power distribution, with uh -huh. the whole idea being that's the most we're, we can send around and still be considered safe. Okay, the, good, uh, good rule of thumb. The so telephone 40, network was close 48. to 48, yeah. Yeah. and that was considered a safe. Okay, location. yeah, in, in my students in my uh, design class, I don't want to lose any students on my watch, and so I always use that criteria. Nobody uses anything with 30 volts, but now it sounds like 42 might be okay. I think so, yes. Okay. Good to know. Okay, so you got safety ground. What's the other type of ground? Yeah, and then uh, for the EMC engineer, when we're concerned with radiated immunity, radiated emissions, transient immunity, we have we have a ground structure. If our product has something big and metal there, uh, that ground structure becomes our, our EMC ground. And for the purpose of radiated emissions, everything that's big and metal, we want to buy. If it's gonna, if there's a chance that it could take on a voltage at a high frequency relative to that ground, we want to bond them to prevent that from happening. Um, and from an immunity standpoint, if we've got current coming down, say a wire harness, a transient current, we want to get that current to our EMC ground, our ground structure, 
Um, so that again, it's our sort of our zero volt reference. It's not designed to carry any intentional current, but it's designed to handle transient current and high frequency uh, unintentional. So you use that term of ground structure. Is that the same as the biggest piece of metal that's connected to the ground voltage? Yes, or the biggest piece of metal. That's a, a fancy word for the biggest piece of metal in the system, yes. Okay. So that's what the ground structure is. Yes. So, so in addition to safety, you're saying then for um, uh, reduced EMI, you want that to be the kind of reference that uh, other conductors are going to be tied to so you don't have a voltage difference between the biggest piece of metal and other structures that may potentially radiate. Yes. Basically, if you look at wires in a wire harness, those are all potentially half of a good antenna. Um, it, but if I can effectively tie them to the chassis voltage, where all of those potential sources are, I, 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 I'm not driving that antenna, and so I won't have radiated emissions. I won't have radiated immunity. So but when you say tie the wiring harness, you know all the wires they have different voltages and signals. So what is it that's tied to? the, the uh, grounding structure about the, the harness. So we want to tie them at radiated emissions frequencies if we don't want to have radiated emissions. So that means if, if we have a capacitor, um, you know, to a, point, a 0.1 microfarad capacitor is tying that thing to ground, by the time we get up to 30 megahertz, say the, the, the lowest frequency where we start to be able to drive things like an antenna, um, we want to be bonded at that frequency. And if you look at an automotive system, very few of our signals are higher frequency than that. Although, well, actually, at least in historically. <laughs> However, the systems I'm working with now largely have a lot of gigabit per second stuff going all over the place. That's all the video and imaging um, signals? Yes, video imaging and also high-speed computing for safety critical. Okay, we're, we're doing this image processing and we have to process that image very quickly, get it to a computer that is going to look at it. Um, so yeah, those are very high speed signals, and so so we can't tie them to ground at high frequency because they're off, the signals are high frequency. So we have two choices: we can send them balanced in a twisted wire pair and so isolated from ground with a common mode choke, because the differential mode current from a twisted wire pair will never be our radiated emissions problem. It will be the common mode current, and and if I do that, I need to keep that away from anything that might put any common mode current on there, and and that's a very viable way of dealing. The, the Ethernet in your home does that. Uh, they don't shield the wire, they just isolate it and keep it away from anything that might drive common current. Uh, and then the other option that we're seeing used much more is um, coaxial cable. You, used to be, you, you could find a coaxial cable in an automobile and you look yeah. at the systems that are being developed now and it's full of coaxial cable. Is that because of cost in the past or not required to Pay the extra for coax? I think, yeah, both. Uh, largely the connector. It didn't do much good to have a really nice coax if you had to have this big pigtail on either end. But because we weren't sending really high speed signals, we didn't have to use coaxial cable. And, and so we, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't worth the cost. Now, okay. all of a sudden, we need it, so it's worth the cost. <laughs> so, three types of ground. You mentioned safety ground, the the uh, grounding structure for EMI, what was, what's the third ground? Yeah, so the third one, it, there are a lot of conductors that we label ground, like the ground plane in a circuit board, 
whose purpose has nothing to do with digital remote reference, really. The, that, the purpose of that ground plane is to, for high-frequency return currents, well, and low-frequency. It's for returning current, signal currents. We send a current out on a trace, if it's single-ended, it comes back on the plane. So it's a current return conductor, not a ground conductor. But because we call it ground, because it's labeled ground, people feel that, well, one of the grounds is current return. And, and for the purpose of ground is current return. And that's where we get into real trouble because yes, the purpose of a current return, labeled ground, is current return. But that is at severe odds with the purpose of the EMC ground in which we cannot return any intentional currents. So it's that term ground that we're misusing that we shouldn't say ground, we should say return path. Yes, in that application. And certainly yeah, for many years, if you look at the papers that came out of the University of Missouri Rala, in the 1990s, a lot of them had to do with circuit board, radiation from circuit boards. None of those papers ever called that plane a, a ground plane. They always called it a return plane. They were, so we called it a return plane. And that was largely at the insistence of Tom Van Doren, who early on, before any of the rest of us recognized the importance, said, we've got to stop calling these things as ground, because people are thinking that the purpose of ground is returning currents, and that's causing them to do exactly the wrong thing in their designs. So Tom wanted to change the world, basically, and <laughs> we kind of gave up on that eventually. You know, we're not going to make everybody call that thing a return plane. We still, I still recommend it, uh -huh. but it's not going to happen. So what we need to do as an EMC or signal integrity engineer is when we see something called ground, in our mind, we need to decide is that really is that a ground ground an EMC ground or is that a current return? Because what we determine it is is going to make a big difference in how we treat that. So if we're dealing with a, a node and a circuit that is uh, a part of the return path, so it's a return path conductor, is there ever a need to use different return path conductors in a circuit, like analog return yeah. path, digital return path? Yes, it, exactly. And uh, that, that's a good People often will talk about, well, we need to isolate the analog ground from the digital ground. If you're talking about isolating, you, you're not talking about having a zero-volt reference anymore. You're talking about returning currents. And when you talk about returning currents um, at low frequencies, we often need to isolate return paths so that we don't have common feeds coupling. And in the case of digital and particularly audio analog, which is low frequency and very sensitive, small amounts of voltage, it becomes necessary to isolate, if you have an unamplified audio signal, isolate that return from the uh, digital ground. And that's mostly because of really low frequency, kind of almost DC currents, and the resistance in the return path. You get kind of resistive coupling uh, between the, aud the very low level audio and the digital or the power currents. Yes, they're low frequency, so they're going to spread out on the whole plane. They're going to share the same copper, so the current from one will induce a small voltage that the other signal picks up at low frequencies. If audio happened to be at one megahertz and higher, or if, we, if we're not talking, if our RF, if, if our analog ground is RF, we don't have to worry about that anymore. You run a trace over here, and the current comes back under that trace on the ground plane, and you run a trace over here and the current comes back under that trace on the ground plane, they're sharing the same ground plane, but there's very little overlap in any current, so you don't have common feeds coming. 
And by the way, I'll mention at RF frequencies, if you got it close enough to where our counterpins uh, coupling was a problem, the E field coupling and the H field coupling would be a much, much bigger problem. <laughs> so we, we don't have to split planes to separate high frequency returns. That, that's really just a low frequency issue. So one of the important messages that I heard in the two presentations you gave was this idea of ground is only a conductor that doesn't carry intentional current and it's used as a reference. And the second is everything else that carries return current is a return path. And it sounds like the only situation in which you need to split return paths is in the case of very low frequency, very low level, where you have that overlapping of, of kind of DC currents. And if you don't have an application like that, that's really low level analog signal, low frequency, never split return planes or return paths. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> that is a very simple message, and I hear so many contradictions in the industry about those messages. And, and so what I, I'll tell people, but I've, I've had people say, well, I've, I've got this 5-volt logic here, and I've got this 1.1-volt logic, which is very sensitive to noise. They each need to have, and, it, and it's DC power distribution, so it, yes, there's low-frequency noise on there. So they need to have their own grounds, because I don't want the noisy 5-volts, uh, the 3.3-volts, 5-volt stuff, getting on my 1.1-volt logic. And I say, well, do the calculation because it's always a very easy calculation. Say, worst case, every, every switch on the 3.3 volt logic switches at exactly the same time. How much current are we forcing through? You know, and, and say it's 10 amps, 10 amps of current. And I say, okay, now let's say that, that all that 10 amps of current flows right through the same copper as the 1.1 volt logic. How much voltage, noise voltage does that create? So you take 10 amps, multiply it by the resistance of the uh, copper, which typically, the planes could be on the order of milliohm per square. Yeah. So milliohm. So you take yeah. 10 amps times 1 milliohm, that's 10 millivolts. 1.1 volt logic, pretty intolerant to yeah. 10 millivolts. In and fact, that's assuming it's all under the yes. same common yeah. path. That I always say, yes, do the worst case, yeah. because chances are the worst case isn't even going to be close to being a problem. So don't isolate them just because you have a feeling that it might, that, that it's noisy. Do the cal it's an easy calculation, do the calculation. Okay, so in your second presentation, you talked about some of the problems in the uh, automotive electronics. And the issue of, the main question was, do you want to connect the circuit ground to the chassis ground, uh, or the big honking piece of metal uh, in, in a car? And, and what was your answer? Yes, and in the presentation, what I pointed out was with the survey of manufacturers, basically, or, or their uh, engine control modules, half of them were DC isolated. So the circuit ground was not DC connected to the, to the metal around it. And half of them were not only connected, they were actually very well connected. Um, and so it's being done both ways. Everybody seems to agree we, we need that high frequency connection. Everybody. And the compelling reason why you need that high frequency connection between the the circuit ground that's the return path and the chassis ground, what's that compelling reason? Because every wire on the harness is referenced to the digital, the, the circuit ground on the circuit board. And um, if you do a component radiated emissions test, say, you've got the harness over the metal tabletop, it's, it's basically dependent on the voltage you put on that harness relative to the metal tabletop, which is 
ultimately connected to your chassis. Um, so we want those very well connected. We want the harness to be at the same potential as the metal tabletop, and the, the best way to accomplish that is to get it well connected to the tabletop, essentially, in high frequencies. So if it's not, if you got a metal harness or you got some circuit whose return path plane is not tied to the chassis, you're saying there's the potential of getting some voltages between them, and that's going to drive emissions, common currents and emissions. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if we just didn't tie it at all, yeah. but we put them close, so we're in a metal box and we put a high-speed circuit board inside it, we will definitely have more than 100 microvolts of noise at any given frequency necessary to fail radiant emissions. You, you won't pass the test if you put it close but don't connect it. Okay, so the compelling reason is if you don't tie the circuit ground to the chassis ground, you're going to fail radiant emissions. Yes, and by the way, you can product fail radiant immunity, bulk current injection, uh, electrical pass transients, and you may have an ESD problem because you didn't give that ESD current in place to go. So, yeah, you're so, going to be in trouble when it comes to the EMC. So, don't float circuit ground or circuit ground to the chassis ground. You have to get them connected together, at least for high frequency. Yeah, that's, that's a good general rule, probably in any industry. If you've got a high speed circuit board, don't put it next to something metal without connecting to it. Uh, because you will drive, well, assuming you are connected to wires yourself, so your wires take on a different potential than the metal that you're near. And because those wires become an antenna, they're going to radiate. Half of the antenna, the other half, half is the metal structure. It's a metal chassis, yes. the ground structure. Yes. Okay, so now you got to have it connected at least high frequency. Now the question is, do you do DC or do you do capacitive yeah, coupling? and that's pretty much, you know, talking with people in the industry over the years. Everybody seems to agree, all the, the knowledgeable people <laughs> seem to agree, oh yes, they understand that we need a good high frequency connection. And when you look at the boards we surveyed, they had a good high frequency connection through capacitors. So yeah, the question is, well, it's working, so why, why would we do anything about that? Um, and one of the points of the presentation, well, yes, it works, but we have to work a lot harder to make it work because a dead short is a pretty good high-frequency connection, whereas if you have to find a capacitor, go through the capacitor and the capacitor's inductance, that's not going to work as well at high-frequency. Plus, we're driving inductive loads, and it's a capacitance, so we can, we're putting potential resonance. So, um, if we're going to put a capacitor, if we're going to use a capacitor to isolate it, we better have a very good reason for doing that, because we're making our life much more difficult. So then it comes down to, well, what was the reason that you isolated circuit ground from chassis ground in the first place? Uh -huh. And that's where we come to, uh, I think in the presentation I had a sort of a, a long list of things I've heard. <laughs> but when you start looking at any of those things, they don't really hold water. And, and you can imagine, if half of, half of the uh, OEMs are already making a solid connection and not isolating those OEMs are not having those problems, obviously. Uh, in fact, in our survey, if you looked at the ones that were isolated, they're really the companies who have the best reputation for reliable electronics. Um, and uh, yeah, nobody I think, can argue that there's a really great reason or that we have to isolate these and create all our... Have a DC isolation. But have the AC. DC isolation and yeah. create these high-frequency headaches. Yeah. I, I hear that argument a lot of, well, we've built so many products, they've worked in the past, so it must be the right thing to do. And what you're saying is, 
maybe in some cases it's going to work, but there may be other cases where you stress it with just the right frequency components to get a resonance and you get a high voltage then between the chassis and the circuit ground at, at the, some frequency and that's what's going to be radiating and going to fail. And they just didn't happen to have those frequency components in the product they built. Or they designed, you know, they had that problem and they designed some site and there are other ways of dealing with that noise. Um, but they all love adding parts and costs that would have been unnecessary. And so it's not a robust that. design. Yes. But it would just happen to, maybe they lucked out. It, it worked in spite of what they did, not because of what they did. Yes, the, the isolation did not help them in any way. Yeah. So they isolated and then we're having to make up for having that isolation there. But the, the, that's, the sad thing was the isolation wasn't necessary in the first place. Uh -huh. I hear similar arguments in circuit board designs that have uh, Ethernet cables and connectors on them and the board. And the question is always, well, the shell of the Ethernet connector, do you want to connect that to the uh, circuit ground and of the board or chassis ground or isolate it from both of them? So if you don't have a shielded cable, and you have a shielded connector, it's not going to make much difference. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, so when I'm uh, doing a design review and I see that, I, I don't really worry about it. I, I'd yeah. rather fight the battles that are going to make a difference. Um, now, if you have a shielded cable that you're going to connect to, um, you need to get that connector to the chassis ground. To, it's very important that you get it to the chassis ground. You, you can get away with taking it to the circuit ground if you are not, if that circuit ground basically is your zero volt reference for the whole system. So if you've got, say, one connector, two connectors, one of them Ethernet, one of them other stuff, they're side by side on the same edge of the board. So now that whole edge of the board, as long as we don't run horizontal signals, that whole edge of the board is at pretty much the same potential. So now you could go to the circuit ground. You, you still have to go to the chassis ground if you've got a chassis but you could use the circuit ground to get you there. But a lot of the Ethernet cables we see are on a different side of the board. So now the circuit ground is not at reservable potential anymore, and if you ground your shielded cable to that, you're driving, all the voltage dropped across the board is driving that cable relative to your, to your real ground, your, to your chassis. So for the special case of the like Cat6 shielded uh, twisted pair Ethernet cable, you always want the shield connected to the chassis to re prevent radiant emissions. Um, and normally, uh, if you have the twisted pair and if it's a pure differential signal, you're not going to have any currents in the shield. But if you have common currents from the circuit board, they'll be on the inside of the shield and they'll flow to the inside of the chassis. The circuit board, let's say we have a connector on one side, and then we put the Ethernet connector on the other side. So basically, all the currents working on the ground plane are creating a magnetic flux that puts a voltage on one side of the board relative to the other. So if I were to connect my shielded cable to the to the opposite side, to the circuit ground, I, yeah, the board ground, yeah, the then, board is driving a comparable current that's on the outside of the shield. Yeah, and yeah. so the shield acts as an antenna, yes. and it's going to radiate. Yes. Uh, but if we have the the shield connected to the chassis, then it's not at a different voltage than the chassis. Chassis, so it's not going to be an antenna. Right. But if the twisted pair that's inside the shielded cable, if there are any common currents on that that get into the twisted pair, those common currents are going to return on the inside. Exactly. Okay, so they're not going to radiate either. Right. Because uh, the outside is not going to have any of the, the, the current on it. Yep. Okay. 
Uh, and so what you're saying is that the shield should, of the cable should always be connected to the chassis. And hey, if they're common currents, they're common currents, but they're going to be the inside of the shield and not contribute to radiation. Yeah, if it would happen to induce any. I, I'm not sure what the mechanism is by where we're putting the common current. I'm just aware of it. Asymmetry just in the oh, signals that it get oh, driven. Okay, yes. Yeah. But so for the board ground. Unshielded, that's a real oh, problem. Yeah. And we do a pretty good job. Um, with the isolation transformers and uh -huh. the common load chokes, particularly when they're built into the same component, huh. I, I'm just amazed at how well that works. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it takes just microamps of common mode current to be a problem. And yet that arrangement, if laid out properly, seems to work very, very well. Yeah. It is astonishing that there's a lot of Cat5 cable systems out there that pass great admissions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back when I was at IBM, Again, about 40 years ago, they did a study, this is before Ethernet or anything, but uh, uh, IBM had a cabling system that I worked on, and they had done a study uh, just of the physics of different cable types, and they determined that the maximum speed you could send over a twisted wire pair was 2 megabits per second. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, just, and that was due to, uh, so it didn't fail rated emissions, or is that due, due to, to bandwidth? Yeah, it was through their analysis. There were a number of issues, okay. but, but certainly the radiated emissions was a big part of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so you, you gave a couple talks about grounding uh, and, the, and the whole issue about what are the issues with grounding here. But uh, I remember a talk you gave at DesignCon a couple of years ago, before COVID, uh, about reliability of electronic systems and automotive applications. And to this day, I still think about that because I drive a Tesla. Oh. And and there are so many uh, electronics that are part of cars now. Uh, someone, uh, I don't know if it was Musk, was, maybe it was Musk said, you know, they design, they're, they're not building cars, they're building data, no, you said it, they're building data centers on wheels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there's so much electronics in the systems. And I still remember the statistics that you mentioned. You said that right now today, uh, if you look at the number of deaths in automotive accidents, there are 30,000 a year, and that's about 100 a day. And we don't blink much at those kinds of numbers, but as soon as there's one accident with an autonomous vehicle, it makes headline news. Yep, that's right. Uh, um, yes, and, and of course, many of those are actually due to the artificial intelligence and the training, and uh, they're not really EMC-related right. right now. Right, but it's still the fact that there are electronic systems that are you know running our cars today and with a lot of software and I always wonder my my Tesla gets his software updated every two weeks and I'm thinking what what was the problem that needed updating yeah. <laughs> that I was driving around with but when you have a million lines of code or more you I guess the problems are going to be found and I worry a lot of, you know what you brought up in your talk was we we don't blink at 100 deaths a day because we can sometimes blame it on the driver. But if we have an autonomous vehicle, we can't blame it on the driver anymore. We're going to blame it on the electronics. And that may be our problem even now today, that many of these automotive deaths are due to the electronics and the complexity of the, of the system that we're driving. Oh, abs I am absolutely convinced. <laughs> In the case where the uh, Tesla drove right into the side of a white-paneled truck, just drove right into the side of it. Um, they, they said, well, yeah, the, the system should have seen that truck, but the driver should have 
put the brakes in. So they assign some blame to the driver and some to the electronic system. Um, and that's only basically because it had a system that clearly failed in that situation. It, it, that situation shouldn't have been possible. But we see a lot of situations where uh, safety critical electronics can fail. And after the accident, you would you would never know that the system failed. You'd just say, um, well, I use electronic stability control as an example. If you drove to work every day and you went around the same 35 mile an hour curve and you took it at 50 miles per hour, but you have electronic stability control, which every car has now, or every new car, um, and that would basically correct for you and keep the car stable and keep you on the road. Well, if one day on your way to work, your electronic stability control didn't function, you go off the the curve roll, and if you were killed, everybody would say, "Oh, gee, the you took it too fast." Yeah, yeah. The curve too fast. Yeah, and nobody, there would be no record, there would be no evidence that the electronic system had failed. Yeah, and I, having worked with a lot of automotive electronics and a lot of failures, and seeing uh, statistically it's happening a lot, but we have no way of we're not monitoring it, we're not looking for it. Uh huh. Is that something that can even be tested? You know that level of Reli you know, safety reliability in the electronic systems that we have? Well, we, we can certainly do a better job of monitoring when things fail, right? <laughs> Automotive companies are not anxious to monitor everything because they don't want uh, necessarily a record. They you mean kind of black box for... Yeah, a black box. For, um, for cars? Yeah. And yeah. prior to 2016, there was very little that was monitored. And in an accident, if you lost power, that memory would be uh -huh. wiped out for the most part. There was a few things that were recorded. In 2016, NHTSA said, you know, we need to start. So they came up with a list of more more things that we need to monitor and retain, even if we lose power. But that list is pretty short. There most, most of the kinds of failures, a lot of EMC kinds of failures that happened, um, there would not necessarily be any record that that failure had occurred after the accident. From all of your experience in both teaching and working with automotive companies and going around to other companies. Do you have any recommendations for the industry of what we need to do better in order to minimize some of the risks in uh, in these uh, uh, data centers on wheels? Well, certainly. <laughs> um, uh, the artificial intelligence, I, that, I'm not machine learning is not my subject, and so trusting that, I, 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 I don't know any more than the average engineer would about that. However, as far as EMC goes, I, I know we can design automotive components to meet the requirements. Um, when, when I do consulting, um, I, I guarantee and say, okay, do it this, do this, and you will meet the EMC requirements. And if by chance you don't, you know, I will be there. I, I, we're off the clock. I will make sure that you get through. But I've been doing this for over a decade. I've never had to go in troubleshooting. Um, the, the requirements themselves are not that difficult to meet, especially if you don't try to isolate your ground. Um, but what's happening more and more often is, I, I shouldn't say more often, it's always been happening, people don't even think much about EMC until they go into the EMC lab for testing, and then they fail the test. And then they start changing things and looking at the results, and they keep changing things until they pass the test. So they really designed a product to pass the test, not to not to just be compliant. Yeah. And a lot of those components, when they get put in the automobile, later show that they have a problem and they failed with vehicle level testing. Um, 
and we've got to stop doing that. Um, but yeah, basically, I would recommend you, you get one chance. <laughs> you bring your product up, you know, or maybe we say for a minor thing, you can make a minor correction. But you basically have one chance. You bring it in the lab, and it's got to pass. If it doesn't, you go away. We're, we're looking at somebody else's design. Uh, and if we were able to start doing that and able to enforce that, we would see a, a change overnight in terms of people. Because you can do it. You just have to put the effort in. Do it by intent rather than by, yeah. you know, by trial and error. That's right. It's designed to comply, and I've done my analysis, and I know it's going to comply. And, and so what what is an example of a problem that would result if, if your vehicle and electronics didn't pass an FCC certification test or a compliance test, and you're driving around, what's going to be the consequence of that? What's the problem so, you're trying to avoid? Yeah, so there are different tests, of course. Uh, for like, and, and first of all, in the U.S., there are no federal regulations on the EMC of automotive systems at all. Okay. FCC doesn't touch it. Nobody regulates it. The OEMs themselves set their requirements, and the people who supply them electronics have to meet those requirements, but the OEM can waive it. They can say, okay, well, the deadline's coming up. Costs. You're good enough. We're going to go with it. Um, so it's not a requirement. But, yeah, so say that the immunity ones to me are, well, more important. Radiated emissions, it's largely to avoid interfering with the antennas in and on the vehicle, and there are a lot of them now, and people are very concerned of, like, a global positioning. So interfering with communications it, yeah. with the vehicle, yeah. or associated with the vehicle. Yeah, and, and even though the antenna may be way up on the roof, yeah. um, and yours located, it's you, you, you share a harness with other stuff, that noise, once once you're producing it, once you're putting it on the harness, it can work its way to a place where it can desensitize the, the antenna. So that's the main consequence of not meeting radiant emissions requirements. I, they are already so stringent, you're not likely to interfere with your... If the car pulls up beside you, you're not going to interfere with the Somebody radar. else. Yeah. But the immunity requirements are a different story. There, um, if you are not compliant, that means you are susceptible to transients. If, if you ever uh, put a current probe on anywhere in the power system of an automobile where the engine's running or it's operating, very, very noisy. Um, even though we have these conducted emissions requirements that limit how much we put on the power, it's very noisy, and every time you start something up or shut something down, you're creating transients, and we don't regulate that. Conducted emissions doesn't worry about transient stuff, just steady state. Uh, it's a very noisy environment, and so the danger is uh, if you're vulnerable to noise, particularly in a certain state, but the real danger is you're normally not vulnerable to it, but while you're doing some function, you, you end up being in a position where you're momentarily vulnerable and then transient comes in and all of a sudden you don't want to do that. And even if the odds of that happening are one in a million per hour of operation, uh -huh. as we talked about in the presentation, it's going to be happening thousands of times a year in actual vehicles. And it's probably happening now in yes. a lot of vehicles. Yes. Yeah, very scary thought to leave this discussion <laughs> yeah. with. Yeah. So before we finish, um, so you were, you've been on in uh, what University of Missouri in Walla for a while, and you changed your name to... Missouri Institute of Science Technology? What's the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Missouri University so of Science and Technology. They changed the name right after I left. Okay. The year I left. And then you went to Clemson and you were there for about twelve years? 
11 years? Uh, yeah, officially nine years, although okay. I kept teaching and doing research for another year and a half or so. Okay. Like but you, you left there as an emeritus professor? Emeritus. Yes. Emeritus yeah. professor. Okay. And now uh, you have your own company. You've had that for a while. And you and what do you do now with your company? What's uh, the main focus? We, we do education largely and then also consulting. And most of our consulting is in the automotive area. Okay. And so that's learnemc.com? Yes. Okay. And you offer uh, public classes and on-site classes? Uh, yeah. Public open enrollment classes, since the pandemic, they have all been online. Ah, okay. But we do have a facility. We used to teach them in Stowe, Wisconsin, and invite people to come to Stowe. But um, the pandemic got people more used to the online, and so our open enrollment yeah. classes are all online now. Um, they're 90 minutes a day for... Uh, well, 12-hour courses for eight days and wow. six-hour courses for uh, four days. But, um, yeah, but, and we do, we're back to on-site. So for a company, well, we will do on-site, uh, sorry, for a company, we'll do a private online class for the company. Um, but now we're, I'm back to on-site to where I will come out to the company and, and offer a one- or two-day class. Uh -huh. And you also do consulting for uh, companies? Yes. Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> uh -huh. I remember. I can't remember if it was um, was it uh, Juniac or uh, maybe it was Tom Van Doren who used to say that um, whenever he saw um, a uh, circuit where they had uh, multiple grounds or split grounds, all he thought was, mm, "I'm going to have some consulting business here." <laughs> yes, that was Tom Van Doren. Ah, uh, Tom. Yeah, the more, that. yeah, yeah. The more of these symbols I see on the schematic, the, the more work. Is for us every day. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, very good. Hey, uh, Todd, thank you so much for the time today. I enjoyed the sessions. I learned a lot, and thanks for joining us uh, for this podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Todd Hubing for joining us and to Rody and Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition.